a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle Forget Dynamite Pulp Fiction was so explosive an event when it was released 20 years ago that you could well call it Cinemite Oscar winner, recipient of the Palme d'Or the movie that defined not only an era but also made a studio the film that perhaps has more quotable lines of dialogue than any other since since Pulp Fiction is by any stretch an iconic film but I want to know what made it that much like everything else we can answer this in the same way when we are asked what makes a movie star or what makes a great pop song the answer the public and the public gets what the public wants right but what is that well we don't know at least not until we see it overall what we want is something startling significant something that reflects back to us who we are because for something to be iconic it has to be made according to a convention or tradition and yet what really helps to find something as iconic is its singularity and how can we assess such singularity time it is the passing of time that tests the status of the work it probes the work for meaning innovation individuality its social and cultural significance as well as its connection to but also separateness from other works put a film up on screen and view it and review it and see if it still holds up in other words it is only well after the fact that the movie has been released that it can be called iconic unless of course you're talking about pulp fiction all right tell me what to do okay uh you're giving her an injection of adrenaline straight to her heart but she's got a breastplate you got to pierce through that so what you got to do is you got to bring the needle down in a stabbing motion i, I gotta I, I gotta stab her three times no you don't gotta fucking stab her three times you can stab her once but it's got to be hard enough to get through her breastplate into her heart okay. all right and then once you do that you pr- press down on the, the plunger okay then what, ha- then what happens i'm curious about that myself it's a fucking joke man am i gonna oh, kill her I'm oh, gonna... oh, she's supposed to come out of it like that it's all right count to three It's 20 years since it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and from the moment its first reels unspooled in front of its first audience it was as if even before the light from the projector flickered through the celluloid hit the screen and then reflected back onto the retinas of the viewers the images, sounds, dialogue performances the whole thing was iconic. It was probably iconic from the moment Quentin Tarantino sat down to shape the story with Roger Avery. How is this possible? Well, one explanation might be that Tarantino, the pop culture vulture that he is, was able to reach into that vast reservoir and draw forth something we were at once not expecting, yet were wholly familiar with. The stories are recognisable. You don't have to be completely au fait with the plots of dime store novels to know that some boxers take money to throw fights. And just as surely as that happens, there is always one boxer who doesn't throw the fight, but who takes the money anyway. And that sometimes, when the gangland boss is out of town, 
he tells one of his minions to keep an eye on his wife and make sure she doesn't fool around. We have all heard stories, told second-hand of course, about a friend of a friend of a friend who witnessed a robbery and that in each retelling of that robbery, the hold-up gets more and more outlandish, until it no longer resembles the claimed event itself, but sounds more and more like the stuff of cinema. We all know the differences between McDonald's and Burger King, but not all of us knew this nugget. You know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh man, they get the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it uh, a Royale with cheese. And even though none of us had ever been to a food outlet called the Big Kahuna, because until Pulp Fiction, there was no such place, we all felt as though we knew it. Almost every moment in Pulp Fiction was immediately within our grasp. There was a connection. And yet the film seemed so innovative and novel. It was as if it were separate from everything else. And that's what made Pulp Fiction an instantly iconic film. 40 minutes to get the fuck out of Dodge. Which if you do what I say, when I say it should be plenty. Now, you got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Pulp Fiction was Tarantino's follow-up to his breakout debut, Reservoir Dogs. And just as that film was a delirious explosion of the heist genre, Pulp Fiction celebrates the very act of telling a story on screen. Its creator asks you to have as much fun as he does. And that is perhaps the one question Tarantino demands of himself as a writer and director. Is this fun? Because chances are, if it is fun for him, the audience will have a good time. This hedonistic attitude means that it hardly matters that the film is amoral, glib, emotionally shallow, reckless and irresponsible. Little of that seems to matter simply because the film is also an exhilarating experience. It's cool because it doesn't care about anyone or anything in particular. It's fun because it's great to be around a pair of charismatic guys who talk about the things we do. They're like you and me, but then they're not. They're killers. And as if that were not enough, one of them has a fixation with quoting scripture. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. The Bible-thumping killer? A sermonizing assassin? Innovative, it seems vaguely familiar. Original, it is also a cliché. More than that, the fact is that Jules isn't actually quoting from the book of Ezekiel, but rather from the Gospel according to Quentin. Only it wasn't written by Quentin. Tarantino took the entire speech, almost word for word, from a Sonny Chiba movie from 1976 called The Bodyguard. So, Jules' speech is just another thing to say. He may as well be passing along his theory about... Let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about a girl who takes a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. Or even a comic book hero. Superman. Not a great comic book. Not particularly well drawn. I don't know how many times I've watched Pulp Fiction. At least once a year for every year since its initial release. Obviously, most of those viewings have taken place on a couch. But no matter where I am, I always momentarily forget when certain things happen in the story. Which I hope serves as a measure as to how highly I regard the film. For instance, 
the movie opens in the diner. I'm familiar enough with the movie to ask whether there is any chance that that sound is Zed on his motorbike. Anyway, as the dialogue between Pumpkin and Honey Bunny unfolds, I find myself waiting for the actual robbery to begin, and then the scene to climax with that incredibly kinetic freeze frame. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! And also the way Amanda Plummer's voice continues on after she has stopped moving. And then there's this. <laughs> the way the movie's title, in mustard yellow and ketchup red, looms so large on screen. And then suddenly this happens. That's what I always forget. For a second, it sounds like something has gone wrong with the soundtrack, but obviously it's not. It's the sounds of someone retuning the dial on a car radio. And that only makes real sense when the opening credits end and we find ourselves in another story. Yes, the technique is flashy, but it also serves the complete picture. By linking the opening scene in this way, it is as if Tarantino is constructing his own cinematic city, where the different plot lines exist in adjacent neighbourhoods. And since Tarantino is the mayor of this cinema city, it is, of course, inevitable that at some point the stories will meet. And then, as if that were not enough, Tarantino digs tunnels under the neighbourhoods so that the plots run over one another and loop back in the timeline. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Is he a friend of yours? Oh, Vincent, hmm? oh, Marvin, Marvin, Vincent. Better tell him to shut the fuck up, he's getting on my nerves. Marvin, Marvin, Marvin! I'd knock that shit off if I was you. Die, you mother! One of the things I like most about the film is the way it looks. Far from his desire to decode genre, and disrupt a story's chronology. Tarantino's visual design is so carefully balanced as to border on the point of conservative. His frame is never cluttered, and throughout his entire career, he has very rarely moved the camera, or indeed gone in for rapid editing. The one exception, actually two, were for the Kill Bill volumes, dual installments that were the astonishing exceptions to prove his very composed rule. For Pulp Fiction, the images simply gleam on the screen. The colours are primary, the reds are rich, the blacks inky, the whites brighter than a washing powder commercial. Tarantino and his cinematographer Andre Sekula chose the 50 ASA film stock. ASA stands for American Standards Association, and the standards refer to the film's exposure index. This determines the speeds of the film stock. The higher the number, the faster the speed and the speed determines the sensitivity to light. The higher the sensitivity, the grainier the image. In Pulp Fiction, there is no grain. It has a magnificent sheen to it. It is smooth, seamless, glossy, and so, despite its raucous content, 
the colors make it look as though it were a movie from the 1950s, which was when the Pulp Fiction genre died out. As for Pulp Fiction the movie, two decades on, it has lost none of its thrill and shows no sign of dying out anytime soon. <laughs>